Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. Normally, we release episodes on Friday to consider the content of our weekly roundup of stuff on the web called Another Weekends, but this is a special episode, our Thanksgiving podcast. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Sarah Condon, and she'll talk a little bit about how to be gracious with yourself, particularly if you've got a toddler in difficult spaces like churches. After that, we'll hear a homily from David Zoll entitled, The Mother of All Virtues. Melody Beattie once said, gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos to order, confusion to clarity. It can turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, a stranger into a friend. Why can gratitude do this? Because it's generally a response to grace. There's a lot of talk at Thanksgiving about being grateful and thankful for what you have. But generally, I think we're the most grateful when we're aware of what we don't have, what we lack, when we are poor in spirit. It's in those moments when we realize what we don't have, what we don't have together, that we can really be grateful. Because in those moments, we're the most open to grace. I'm here with Sarah Condon, who is an Episcopal priest and a Mockingbird board member and contributor. And no, I did a little like internet stalking of you. And so here's the, <laughs> here's the most interesting thing. And I'm going to sound so ignorant and I apologize oh. to begin with. So I was looking, you went to Ole Miss. Yes. And you were in Southern Studies. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just thinking like, I mean, I'm a Northeastern, I grew up in New Jersey, you know, sure. so I'm thinking Southern studies, like, are we talking like, you know, food, Dukes of Hazard? that was totally yeah. ignoramus yeah. kind of thing. Like a lot of food ways stuff. Uh, the Center for Southern Food Ways is also out of that department I studied at. So a ton of food stuff, which is great. A lot of literature. So a lot of Faulkner, right? A lot of Eudora Wealthy. Um, a lot of stuff about the civil rights movement and the civil war. So that was really the big areas that we hit in that department. And of course, a ton of stuff about religion because, you know, it's the South. So, yeah, I was on the website and it's this very kind of cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. social justice oriented. Kind yeah. of, it's a lovely, but so I apologize for my stereotypical. No, 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 no. Yeah. It, that's the thing is a lot of people will sign up for the, those classes as native Mississippians because they think like, I've got this down. I'm super Southern. And then they show up and it's a pretty challenging environment. So yeah, it's cool. Like if somebody said to me, like, do you want to major in New Jersey studies? I'd be like, yes, yeah, Springsteen, Bon Jovi, John Stewart. I got this. I got this. I can mail this in. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there were people who went on and got their master's, and you know, in Southern studies. And some of them would have these, like, you know, really interesting social justice, religious sort of focuses. But then there was, like, one girl who I loved, and her whole thing was NASCAR. Like, that's what she got her master's in, was, like, Southern studies and NASCAR. So... 
Because it's a whole culture, right? NASCAR culture. Wow. Yeah. Somebody did a degree in NASCAR. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a it's a cool department. I I loved my education there. Yeah. And then you went to Yale Divinity School. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Which was great. It was really good. Um, but I feel like Southern Studies, and you know, I say this a lot about that department, but I learned so much about sin and redemption uh, in studying the South in a way that I just couldn't have learned anywhere else. Now you live in. Texas, which is the Southwest. Yeah. So do you feel, is it like Southern studies, the Southwest, is it sort of like social work and sociology? You feel like, hey, it's not exactly the same field, but I've got some related skills. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. The, the thing about the South, that especially Mississippi, where I'm from, is that race relations are, um, you can't avoid them, right? Like you can avoid them in other parts of the country because we used to live in New York and you can avoid them there because they, people are so much more segregated in a lot of ways there. Um, and they're unavoidable in Mississippi. So I feel like that conversation just, sorry, happens more easily. You are now, are you regularly, you had a piece that you contributed to the Mockingbird site. It was kind of an advice column format. Mm-hmm. Are you regularly doing that now? Yeah, I mean, if people send in questions, yeah, I think it would be really fun. Um, uh, it was a friend of mine who sent in that question to me. Originally, he sent in an email form, and he actually said, hey, this would be a great advice column for Mockingbird. His name's Jesse Zink, and he's awesome, and it was totally his idea. But, yeah, I mean, if other people send me questions, like, I mean, it's funny, right? Like, I've been a mom for five years, so, like, I'm not an expert at this. That's the hard thing about parenting is, Somebody just hands you a baby and then there's no blueprint. Um, so I feel like we're all talking to each other in the trenches to some extent. So. Yeah, because that was the premise of the piece, right, was this guy saying, hey, I'm a clergy spouse. Mm-hmm. My wife is a, is a rector. And I just feel like my kid is, like, running around and doing these things that are distracting. And I feel, like, you know, awkward, sometimes a little shamed, embarrassed, and... And like, what the heck do I do? And I feel like that's a, so. To give our listeners some context, I was driving three hours to a funeral with a couple who has four kids. The oldest is like nine, and they have a newborn. Wow. And just the newborn was with us. The other kids were staying with family. But I just said, "Hey, I want to read this out loud to you." And they thought it was the most therapeutic. Uh, thing. I mean, they just thought, gosh, this is, they are people that are busy and active and church people. I mean, they're involved in, in religious life and they just, they got the stress. I mean, so I don't, both the question and your response, I thought was just so on the ground and on target. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I feel like I'm saying a lot of the same things everyone else could say about this in some ways. Like this is all, you know, when you bring children into church, all of those issues of like self-judgment, judgment of others, the little laws of like how children should be in church, what clergy spouses should be in church. I mean, it is such an intense experience for me um, to bring my children into church some Sundays. And I've gotten better at it because I've let go of what we should look like, right? But I mean, my joke in church is always that when we have newcomers, that they must look back at me and be like, that poor single mother, like, where is her husband? You know what I mean? Because 
because my kids are like the least well behaved of all the kids because they're always there. So yeah, yeah. And I feel like in general, a lot of people going to church, even though they know, oftentimes it's a very healing thing to hear the message of grace with one another. It's like still sometimes like walking on broken glass to get there. And then when you're thinking about the shaming and the and the and you basically, I mean, if you could summarize like your advice to people struggling with this, uh, if they didn't read your piece yet, or what would you say? I mean, I think I would say what I said to him, which is that we have to remember in all things, but especially in parenting, that we are loved by a gracious God, right? And so all of these um, things that we impose on ourselves about what our children should be like and how they should be in church and what we think other people are thinking. Like we have to do the best we can to just let that stuff go because it's not helpful. Right. And we can't control the situation. We can just show up and have our kids present and know that that in and of itself is a huge gift to them and to us. I don't know. I, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's really hard. There's not a good answer for how to have a small child in church, except that, um, except that there's a lot of grace that you can give yourself and give your child if you just kind of jump in. Yeah. Do you feel like parenting also like it, it, if there's no grace, it just becomes another self-justifying project. Like I'm going to feel good about myself because I was the perfect parent and I did that. And so you kind of like, you kind of have to get off that train, but it's a hard train to get off of. Like, yeah. There was great, like, I read mom blogs sometimes, and there was this great mom blog, like, two weeks ago. And I wish I heard the name of it because I keep quoting it to people. But she, so this mother had her first child at 17, so she was in high school. And then she had the last of her children at 38. And at 17 years old, she said, my experts in parenting were my parents and what to expect when you're expecting and she said, and I thought I was an awesome mom, right? And then she has this kid at 38, and there's the whole of the internet, and she thinks she's doing everything wrong. Like, so it's a really hard train to get off of, because we're all on, you know, the internet, like, judging ourselves and in judgment of others. And sometimes I wonder just how different parenting would be if we didn't have the internet. Like, would I make completely different choices? Yeah, I think I yeah, a whole host of things, right? I mean, it's just we live our lives in 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 a bubble. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to encourage everybody our listeners cuz this touches everybody. If you're not a parent, I'm not a parent. I'm married, but I'm not a parent yet. But I certainly know tons of people. Like I said, I'm just in the car ride immediately the folks I was in the car with connected with it. So everybody, if you're not in the situation, you someone one degree away from you. It's not, you don't even have to go four degrees like with Kevin Bacon. I mean, one degree. Uh, it's, so I'd encourage people to take a look at it. Can I ask you one last question? Sure. So as a woman in ministry mm-hmm. and you're in the Episcopalian church, which mm-hmm. kind of has a uniform, do you think that's an easier fashion thing or a harder <laughs> one? Having a uniform. Yeah. So um, I hate wearing a clergy collar. I do it for one big reason, and that is because people see you in it, and generally, especially in church ministry, they see you in it, and they think, this is someone I can talk to, this is someone I can pray with. But the, uh, the, the other side of that coin is that sometimes it gets in the way, right? People feel like they can't say certain things in front of me because I'm sort of going to be holier than now. Um, 
I, I have a complicated relationship with the caller. When I was in hospital uh, chaplaincy, I was at a hospital with a ton of Catholic patients, and I was pregnant, and I had a caller on. And so I would walk into their rooms, and especially these elderly men would just look horrified. I mean, they couldn't figure out if I was, like, in a Halloween costume, you know, because I'm on a collar and I'm pregnant. It's, like, crazy. And they're in bed, and they're sick, and they need a word of love and encouragement and, you know, and a, a reminder of God's goodness. So, I, actually, when I was in hospital ministry, I stopped wearing the collar, like, eight weeks in. Um and I started wearing it again now in church ministry, and it's great, you know, for those purposes. But sometimes I find it's great and helpful, and sometimes I find it just completely gets in the way. What if you designed, like, a Velcro collar so that you could just kind of like, oh, my gosh, it's getting a little awkward. Hang on one second. Whip it off. Yeah. So I've done that before, and that's great. Um, I'm actually – uh, married to a priest and sometimes he'll take his off and I'll take mine off if we're like at lunch together because we don't want to look like two weird priests having lunch together <laughs> but then we're both in like awkward mock turtleneck situations you know what I mean the but, old all the uh, polyester blend shirt yeah exactly exactly so yeah it's either like we're two priests having lunch or we're two people with like a very weird sense of what an appropriate like collared shirt should look like we're in mock turtlenecks like in you know July in Texas or something. Well, I'll tell you, all our listeners, if you're in the Texas area and you see them, even if you're weirded out <laughs> by the collars, talk to them because they've got great, gracious things to say, like Sarah said in this advice column, which was wonderful. Again, check it out on the website. And if you have any advice-oriented questions, insights you need, send them to Mockingbird, right, via... Do yeah. they, is it a special email or is it just info at mockingbird.com? It's on the, at the bottom of the article. So just, yeah, look at for on the website and Sarah will endeavor to graciously respond. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Thanks. And happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. So here we are almost at Thanksgiving. Every year, I'm always surprised at how we put our heads down in September. And you know, it's just like instantaneous almost. It feels like we, we, we look up and Thanksgiving is here. I mean, this year, I feel like I just moved to Charlottesville and all of a sudden it's Thanksgiving. I don't know about you. Maybe, you've, maybe it's felt like the longest semester of your life, the longest period of your life, but it's felt very short to me. And, uh, but it's good that Thanksgiving is here because I love Thanksgiving. I uh, come from a minister's family, so Christmas was a working holiday for my parents, especially for my dad. So he was, presents maybe took a back seat, uh, unfortunately. Um, so Thanksgiving was the time where we actually did get together, get to spend some time, really quality family time. We weren't a football-watching family, but we did watch a lot of horror movies, and <laughs> the strange Thanksgiving thing, but beyond the sentimental value of Thanksgiving for me, I think it's a beautiful thing, one of the, my favorite parts of being American, that we have a holiday centered around the idea of gratitude. 
gratitude, you know, uh, the Roman philosopher Cicero, who lived about 100 years before Jesus, uh, he, or actually less than that, I think, he was said that gratitude is the mother of all virtues. Gratitude is the mother of all virtues, meaning that a grateful person is a generous person and a compassionate person, is a, uh, you know, a patient person, a kind person, and a serving person. But I think more than that, I think gratitude is unbelievable, almost synonymous with happiness. Happiness to me is, can be like a very vague, abstract thing. It can mean pleasure. It can mean self-fulfillment. But if you get down to it, the times in your life when you've been most grateful are probably the times when you've been most alive in the present moment and most happy. So gratitude being something that is close to happiness and therefore something that I think all of us could use a little bit more of. You know, it's great that we have this holiday of Thanksgiving, but, uh, you know, what's the, cle- what's, the, what's the caricature of Thanksgiving? That although it's got this artifice of gratitude and thanksgivingness, it is in fact a time that often represents the opposite for people. It is a sort of uh, bonanza of passive aggression and uh, obligation and suppressed family dynamics coming to the fore. You know, if, you, if you're dating someone, you know that it's a rite of passage that you have to go spend Thanksgiving with their family and, and try to figure out where to not step on the emotional minds and uh, not put your foot in it too much. It's, it's, it's something you have to survive. Uh, at least that was um, the case for some people that I know. <laughs> Thanksgiving, though, for a lot of folks, although it, sometimes we do have those Thanksgivings that are perfectly restful and beautiful and very present tense, a lot of times we have Thanksgivings where what we really are thinking about are the people that aren't there, the people that have moved away, the people that refuse to come home, and the dynamics that you'd really rather not face. And I think that that's a pale reflection of the human condition. I don't think human beings are wired for gratitude. I don't know about you. My experience with beautiful women is somewhat limited outside of my wife. But um, the beautiful women I know look in the mirror and don't see beauty. They see the one zit or the blemish that they wish wasn't there. Uh, the, the men that I know hear feedback from their job. And they may, there may be ten positive things, but they only hear the one negative thing. For some reason, the human heart is fixated, obsessed with what it doesn't have, with what it lacks, with the holes and the problems. And that's what we wake up thinking about and many of us go to sleep at night thinking about. We are not hardwired for gratitude. So tonight, I'm just going to speak briefly about what it is that replaces gratitude. What, what sin replaces love is the classic question. But what, what are the obstacles to gratitude in our lives? And secondly, how do ungrateful people become grateful people, a.k.a. happy people? How do we experience any shot at happiness in our lives? Now, uh, one thing I'm grateful for this today is that, fortunately, it's a passage that talks a lot about thanks, about, about gratitude. St. Paul writes, May you be prepared to endure everything with patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Okay, the obstacles here. This is a, I think there are two that I'm going to talk about tonight. And the first one is greed. Greed has been 
cartooned as a sort of extreme thing. I want, it's kind of an Uncle Scrooge type of thing. Like that I not only want what I have, I want everything that you have and everything that this person have, and I want it all, and I'm not going to let anything go. No, but that is greed, of course, but greed is far more innocuous. Greed is simply, I want more than what I have. I want to be more than who I am. Dissatisfaction with your, your present tense. And as a result, greedy people live in the future. Everything becomes, I'll be happy when I reach this stage in my life. Your every life becomes a series of stepping stones geared toward a future that we all know is a complete dead end because you never actually get to that place. Culturally, we tend to bless this kind of greed with the word ambition. And I'm not saying that people don't need to be trained for jobs or have aspirations to do interesting things. But what I am saying is that the wanting more, needing more to be enough is a fool's errand. There's a new study for, that came out this, this week. The New York Times publicized it. It was actually everywhere uh, from Harvard about wandering minds. Have you heard about this? Kind of a silly term for a very basic thing. They write, a human mind is a wandering mind, and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. The ability to think about what is not happening is a cognitive achievement that comes at an emotional cost. The ability to think about what is not happening is a cognitive achievement that comes at an emotional cost. In other words, the human propensity for living anywhere but the present is actually an indicator of unhappiness and pain and, and, and hurt in people's lives. Our ability to, to project onto the future and be afraid and anxious about things that probably will never happen is actually part and parcel of why we are so ungrateful and unhappy. The second uh, obstacle I want to talk about, and this is the one that I think I suffer from the most, um, is self-pity. You know anyone who's self-pitying? Who thinks that uh, the world owes them a thanks? And that they're constantly hung up on some credit or reward that they don't feel they've gotten? A lot of times in relationships, there's one person who always feels like they're failing, and there's one person who always feels like the other person is failing. It's called, the, it's called codependency. And um, that's what a, a self-pitying person is the one who is the woe is me. I'm the martyr. If you could, do, if you could be more like me, our, our, our life would get better. But the, the self-pitying person also lives in the past. The self-pitying person, <laughs> say that five times fast, uh, Nurses grudges, keeps accounts, is very judgmental. I mean, do you know anyone in your life that you feel like you're always failing? That no matter what you do, it's never good enough? Well, then you probably know someone who is consumed with self-pity. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't genuine things, genuine reasons, justifiable reasons to, to feel undone and, and, you know, encumbered by life. But what I am saying is that self-pity is self-defeating. You know, the New Testament is filled with people that, that, that are sort of have been victims for so long that they've fallen in love with their, uh, with their identity as victims. Jesus heals a, a, a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida or one of the Beths. And um, 
he says, do you want to get well? And he says, uh, and he actually, he gives him this spiel about how no one wants to help him. And that's a man who's fallen in love with his idea of being a victim. He's gotten an identity from it. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you are someone like that. Self-pity will reduce you to nothing. It does alienate people. Trust me. If people always feel like they're failing you, they're going to stop inviting you to Thanksgiving, or they're going to stop attending Thanksgiving. So to the extent that you feel you don't have the things that you feel like you deserve, you will either be self-pitying or worse, you'll become a bitter, hateful person. And to the extent that you have things that you feel you don't deserve, you will become grateful. Now, you'll notice that these two obstacles run on what we talk about here is the law. One runs on the concept of enoughness. Greed is you are bound up with being enough, enoughness. Self-pity runs on this idea of deservedness. Both enoughness and deservedness create lives that are fueled by, or that are that are completely centered around reward and achievement and earning. And they're dead ends. I wish they weren't, but they are. When the, the cliche goes, happiness is not having what you want, it's wanting what you have. It's actually true. Deservedness enoughness are categorically opposed to this form of gratitude that I'm talking about. So how does an entitled or how does a self-pitying person become a grateful person? How does a greedy person, an ambitious person, a bitter person become grateful? Well, I'll tell you how, how not to become grateful, to be told to be grateful. You know, if you've had, if you've been either a parent to a child or you've been a child yourself, you know that when you're told to be thankful for something, you are no longer thankful for that thing. Or it, a begrudging thanks is not thanks at all. I, can I get an amen? I mean, like, when St. Paul says joyfully giving thanks, that's redundant. Thanks is joyful. Any thanks, any gratitude that is leveraged or sort of bargained is not gratitude. And it's, or at least it's not the kind you want. Just get married and you'll see. Secondly, gratitude is not a matter of just having more things to be grateful for. I wish that were the case. But we all know that the people who have the most materially tend to be the least grateful. I worked as a, as a youth minister for boarding school kids in the Northeast for five years, and I loved them to death. <coughs> Sam Bush. But... but they are entitled. And isn't it ironic that America is the only, is the only country that has this, this, this uh, uh, holiday around the idea of gratitude, yet anywhere you go in the world, Americans are viewed as entitled, as ungrateful, as difficult and obnoxious and loud, and unaware of their surroundings. Now that you, make, you can argue with that, whether or not that's true, it sort of is, but this sense of entitlement tells us that having more does not mean that you'll be more grateful. In fact, the people that seem to have the least are the most grateful. Maybe you saw the movie The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, 2008. It's a French film, or it's, it was made by an American in French, and one of the actors is Swedish-speaking French the whole time. It's a great movie. You need to sort of get through the first 30 minutes, and you'll love it. What it's about, it's about a guy named Jean-Dominique Bobby who is a true story. 
in, uh, he was the editor-in-chief of Elle magazine, which means that he had reached the pinnacle of the Parisian fashion world. And uh, he was very debonair, very dashing. He was, had women at his beck and call constantly. He was praised. And then in 1995, while driving his children home, he had a severe stroke and ended up with something called locked-in syndrome, where he could not control any of his appendages. In fact, the only thing he could control in his whole body was his left eyelid. And, of course, it, you, you follow him through the stages of bitterness and anger and despair. And what you find is that he's taught to, excuse me, speak through blinking. They devise an alphabet. You know, this means, you know, I'm going to read these letters to you. you blink when, I, when you get to the letter you want. He writes an entire book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly that way. It is an amazing story. But what you find is a man who is entitled becomes grateful by being reduced to nothing. And he doesn't just become grateful of his children and the women in his life and the people taking care of him. He becomes grateful for being able to say a word, for being able to express himself, to have another day. And it's complicated. You know, it's, it's, it's a work of art, so it can't be reduced this much. But watch it. That is how an ungrateful person becomes grateful. And, you know, if you don't want to go that, that sort of a little bit more artsy-fartsy direction, just watch Harry Potter. The kid is put through so much grief in order to become a loving, self-sacrificing person that he does become. But his grief, starting with the death of his parents, continued through the death of his godfather, which he almost engineers, through people dying left and right. That is what shapes him into a grateful person, a person that is so generous that you know what happens. Okay. So, we must be disabused of this deservedness thing and this enoughness thing. We need to, suffering and these tragedies, unfortunately, will force a person to see life as a gift rather than a reward or a project. Life is no longer about figuring it out, getting the right answer to what you need to do with your life. Life actually becomes an experience and a gift and a joyful one at that, full of thanksgiving, not devoid of suffering. But secondly, contrition and humility are not the only things you need to become a, this sort of great, great, grateful, happy person. Something else has to happen. Something big. Grace, gratitude doesn't happen in a vacuum, does it? Gratitude is a response. You're grateful for someone, or you're grateful to some something, or vice versa. Gratitude is not self-generated. It is always a response. The passage that we read here, St. Paul talks about Christians being grateful for an inheritance. Now, that's a beautiful image. An inheritance is a gift of what someone else has done, given to you, not because of anything you've done, but because of who you are. An inheritance is a gracious thing. Although, you know, maybe you're caught up in an inheritance battle right now and don't want to hear that. But an inheritance, in theory, is a grateful, gracious thing. And the Christian religion, 
is not only a religion of grace, it is a religion of gratitude. All life is lived as a response to this grace. Mark Galley of Christianity Today wrote this. He said, only only unconditional grace can transform a hardened heart into a grateful heart. Only a free gift can sabotage any notion of the quid pro quo. Only an utterly merciful act of love can fashion a new creation capable of love. Now, the merciful act here, as outlined by St. Paul, is that we are people who have been rescued from darkness and transferred into a kingdom of light. And the mechanic of that transfer, that mechanic of that redemption, is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Now, you, we all know, Go, just go back to the Scrooge story. A forgiven person is a grateful person. Scrooge, when he is sort of confronted with the consequences of how he's been acting and and his greed and his self-pity and his self-centeredness, and he's given a second chance, he actually becomes spontaneously uh, generous, spontaneously loving, uh, funny, silly, all sorts of, and repentant. All the kind of things that we might associate with a happy person is what Scrooge, a person who's been forgiven, displays. So forgiven people are grateful people, and forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of our faith. And this is why we preach this message every single week at Christ Church. We just don't believe that telling you to be grateful will give you what it takes to be grateful. And we don't believe that telling you how to be grateful is helpful either. If you need to be told how to be grateful, you're not grateful. All we can do is announce over and over again the beautiful, profound truth of a God who was reduced to nothing so that you can be grateful for everything. Grateful people don't suffer in the same way self-pitying or bitter people suffer. There is a lightness to life's trials. But let me say this. The forgiveness of sins is a perpetual thing. This Thanksgiving, as you're sitting around that table, dealing with your own greed, your own ambition, your own self-pity, your own all the ways that this idea of deservedness and enoughness tyrannize your inner life and the way you treat other people. You were forgiven for that too. You were forgiven even for your ingratitude. That is the good news of the gospel. Happy Thanksgiving.